All right, welcome back, everybody, to the Building Lifelong Athletes podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Ranke. Thanks so much for stopping by. I really appreciate it. Today, we're talking about part three of the 2018 Endocrine Society guidelines on hypogonadism and testosterone therapy. I appreciate you sticking around here. This is going to be all about the treatment and monitoring of it. So we're getting into the nitty-gritty here of you know what formulations we're using and how do we monitor it. So let's dive in. All right, so now let's get into the treatment. We talked all about their stuff. What does the Endocrine Society actually recommend? Well, there are specific use cases for that. You know, one is going to be they do recommend to use it to help induce and maintain secondary sex characteristics and to correct symptoms of testosterone deficiency. So we're using, you know, which agent we're going to use depend on the patient's preference, cost, physician's comfort, and side effects as well. And so overall, we're using these to either correct, you know, the testosterone deficiency symptoms or to induce secondary sex characteristics if they never really happened. And they do um, recommend against using testosterone in men planning to have fertility in the near term. So if you are wanting to um, father a child, they recommend not using that. Additionally, if you have a history of breast or prostate cancer, a palpable prostate nodule, if your PSA is greater than four nanograms per milliliter or greater than three nanograms per milliliter with a high risk of prostate cancer due to family history or whatnot. If you have an elevated hematocrit, you have untreated severe obstructive sleep apnea, severe lower urinary tract symptoms, uncontrolled heart failure, or if you had a heart attack or stroke in the last six months, or if you have thrombophilia, which is clotting issue, they recommend you do not do that. So that's a long list of things there. But obviously going through that, we're thinking about, hey, it makes sense. If you you know want to father a child, don't do that. If you have his prostate issues, probably need to dive in a little further and talk with them about that. Elevated hematocrit, sleep apnea, had a recent heart attack, things like that. Things that are not unreasonable at all, but we should consider that. On top of that though, so let's talk about treatment wise. Let's consider for men who are age 55 to 69 and there's prostate concerns. So if there's a group that has higher risk there, so these group you know, specifically, let's say they have, for whatever reason have a high risk prostate cancer. If they do have a higher risk, um, we have to have a discussion about potential risks and benefits, right? So we're not just going to say, yep, you're on testosterone therapy. It's a little more nuanced. And this also applies, like I said, this is for all like pretty much 50, 55 to 69, because that's where, you know, prostate cancer is more likely to happen. But let's say you're 40 down to 40 years old. So anywhere from the 40 to 69, if you have a high risk of prostate cancer, specifically those of African-American descent or those of the first degree relative of prostate cancer, they have a higher risk. And so that goes all the way down to 40. You also have to decide if, you know, what we're going to do. Are we going to monitor this? Are we going to look at Because the question is, it's kind of uh, up to you and your physician and based off of what guidelines you're looking at, how aggressive you screen for prostate cancer. So um, like I said, the American Urological Society will be will be different from the you know American Academy of Family Physicians, all those things different. So, But if you do decide to monitor it, they do recommend screening before you start with a PSA, which is a prostate-specific antigen. It's a blood test looking at a specific mark from the prostate. They recommend getting the PSA and a prostate exam and then, again, doing those things at 3 to 12 months after starting. And then after one year, if things are all looking good, you can go back to your regular prostate cancer screenings based on the guidelines. Um, but that is something to consider as well. And... When we're getting this treatment, so we're getting this treatment, how, you know, what things are actually improving when we use testosterone? Well, first and foremost, the secondary sexual characteristics can be helpful. So testosterone will develop these things in those who haven't had complete pubertal development yet, right? So like I said, we're talking to those people who have kind of delayed pubertal development or lost it for some reason. It will bring on the things like facial hair and body hair, you know, that grows that. It deepens the voice. It increases muscle and bone accretion. It can have penile enlargement can increase pigmentation in the scrotum, but those are kind of like secondary sex characteristics for when you get testosterone, those things can happen. And even, you know, if you haven't had those as much, I said that can, that can also happen for people taking testosterone. And let's talk about other things in terms of, you know, maybe we're talking about different sexual function stuff. So it can significantly improve libido, erectile dysfunction, and sexual activity. And so like I said, 
the data shows that this is only for those in the hypogonadal range and not in the normal T. So if you have normal testosterone, it does not seem to improve your libido or anything like that. Obviously, things are variable and things change. If you have erectile dysfunction, will testosterone work? Will it save erectile dysfunction with normal testosterone? Like I said, then there's other options as well. And for those who are just trying to do it who have normal testosterone, does not appear to increase um, sexual activity or libido. Um, also does not improve ejaculatory dysfunction. Like I said, for a set is worth mentioning, it may improve for those who had hypogonadism, may improve overall their sexual activity and libido, but does not improve ejaculatory dysfunction. So just want to mention that as well. And they looked at well-being and depressive symptoms. Does testosterone improve that? May have a moderate improvement, unlike the day-to-day mood stuff, but doesn't appear to really do anything for clinical depression in terms of fixing that. Um, also no real improvement in fatigue as well. Going on to bone mineral density. So bone mineral density does seem to have an increase in bone mineral density, but unknown if this affects future fracture risks. That's the biggest thing. And what they want to foot stomp as well and say, hey, this should not be prescribed as monotherapy for osteoporosis, and you should still have your standard of care treatment for osteoporosis. You can use this on top of that if you have low testosterone and low bone mineral density. It's reasonable to do that. But they say this is not a replacement. It should not be used as the only medication you're on for osteoporosis. In terms of body composition, it can increase fat-free mass and muscle strength. It also decreases whole body fat, intra-abdominal fat, and intramuscular fat. So that's pretty pretty cool and uh, like I said, it can be helpful as well. So it wouldn't be the main reason saying, hey, I've lost muscle, give me on testosterone. That's a different, different whole different podcast discussion, um, but it can be helpful there as well. And I want to talk about adverse events as well, right? That's the biggest thing. We talk about our, how safe are these things. Overall, they're pretty safe with a low frequency of side effects. Most common side effects you're going to see are like acne, oiliness of skin and maybe breast tenderness might have some breast enlargement um, can see male pattern baldness brought on by this as well it could also worsen sleep apnea may lead to some prostate issues potentially may lead to something called erythrocytosis like i said an increase of the hematocrit and it may also have some effects on your lipid profile as well I want to touch on a few of those a little more in depth here. Specifically, erythrocytosis, this is diagnosed by having a hematocrit, which is a component of your blood, um, greater than 54%. We're not sure what level is super dangerous, but the thought is that if it gets too high, it can lead to something called occlusive events. Essentially, the blood kind of clumps together and can lead to things like heart attacks, strokes, potentially. So that's why we care so much about it. If it gets up and it's elevated on testosterone therapy, the recommendations are to hold it until it becomes normal again, then start at a lower dose. One of the biggest things people talk about is, is testosterone, is it dangerous from a cardiovascular standpoint? This might be a whole future podcast as well in this series, but overall, the recommendations here said there is mixed data. There's no conclusive evidence that testosterone supplementation is associated with an increased risk of cardiovascular risk. So unclear whether, you know, there also is there a concentration or a relationship between testosterone concentrations and coronary artery disease? I'm not sure. And then also another question relationship between testosterone and mortality. It's like, eh, there's going to be some showing that it's worse, some showing that's better or not any effect on it. So it's kind of like everyone's saying, eh, I don't know. But there is a black box warning on testosterone by the FDA. And they looked at that. People challenged it and said, hey, no way. Look at this data and looked at it and they said, yeah, I'm not sure. And so they're essentially just being really cautious saying, this could happen. We want you to be aware of it. On top of, you know, we mentioned the blood clots earlier and that is one as well, but it's not as slam dunk either. Once again, there's not enough data to conclusively say one way or another. Um, so those are big things people talk about cardiovascular health blood clots the prostates things are another big thing it's questionable though if this does increase the risk of prostate cancer however androgen receptors play a big role in the biology of prostate cancer and so overall the recommendations are like I said they're kind of cautious towards prostate issues and those with prostate cancer because those people are at high risk and so it does like I said when we're 
checking for this, right? So we're checking the prostate when we start testosterone. So this whole process, it does increase the risk of detecting subclinical prostate cancer because of the screening. So when we subclinical means we would normally have, you know, not ever notice this, but because we're screening more aggressively or earlier, we catch this thing. And the question is subclinical means like there's no real symptoms. It's not really growing. It's not invasive. It's not metastatic. It's just kind of there. And this is unfortunately very common for men is like a lot of times they say you die with prostate cancer, not from prostate cancer. Obviously there are different forms and that's not the case all the time, but a lot of times it's more indolent, not as noticeable and it's subclinical for a long, long time, but we might find it earlier. And this may lead to things like biopsies and more invasive procedures, which are not benign. You know, things like biopsies can cause incontinence or erectile dysfunction. So all these things where, you know, we want to be careful. And so it's just one, just another, you know, piece of the puzzle, kind of some more, something you think about and talk with your physician, like, Hey, is it worth it? Do I want to be on this? Do I want to screen for it? All those things. From a cancer perspective, prostate and breath, breast cancer both are hormone dependent. And so we don't give testosterone to people with those. And so those are kind of like the overall risk factors, like I said, kind of real brief, but looking at there. Okay, now let's talk about the different forms of the treatment. So there's a bunch of different ones. Testosterone therapy is super common as we've seen, you know, you've probably seen billboards or ads for it, but there's lots of different ways. You know, first we'll start off with the injections. This is probably the most like common one. These injections are testosterone enanthinate or cipionate. Those are the name, you know, the generic names for it. And the dose here is usually anywhere from like 150 to 200 intramuscularly, meaning you're giving injections every two weeks or 75 to 100 milligrams uh, per week. So like I said, kind of either every two weeks or one week depends on a lot of different things. I'm talking about the pharmacokinetics. So how does this react in the body? So after you inject, it goes way up, goes up to super physiologic range. So meaning above your range and then just gradually declines into the hypogonadal range by the end of the dosing interval. So essentially you go way up there and then you're in there. And, but the goal is that most of the time for that two weeks, you're in the normal like range, range, range. And by the end, you're getting close there. So that is one we can do. Um, the advantage of that are it's very inexpensive. That's like the that's the reason people use it the most. And there's flexibility of dosing, right? So we could do two weeks, we could do one week, so we can change the dose up a lot. Um, that can happen. There are some disadvantages though, meaning obviously you gotta give yourself injections. That's never a fun time. There are lots of peaks and valleys, which may lead to fluctuations of symptoms like maybe changes in mood or libido. Uh, may also have some pain at those injection sites, or sometimes they've also mentioned some coughing episodes after injections, which I thought was interesting, but they mentioned that as well. So like I said, getting the peak and then slowly bringing it down the valley may have some peaks and valleys as well. The next form are transdermal gels and the dosings are 1%, 1.62% or 2%. The doses here are 50 to 100 milligrams of the 1%, uh, 20 to 81 milligrams of the 1.62% or 40 to 70 milligrams of the 2% usually daily right? So daily we're doing that. We're doing these transdermal gels. So we're rubbing on it. Pharmacokinetics here, these gels restore um, testosterone and estrogen concentrations to physiologic male ranges with less fluctuation. So we're kind of in that sweet spot for longer. Um, lots of advantages, including flexibility of dosing. It's easy to apply. Uh, pretty good skin tolerability. It doesn't have a ton of skin issues. Um, there's less erythrocytosis compared to injections as well. So that's something to consider. But the disadvantages are that you can transfer this from skin to a spouse, you know, a female spouse or child, you know, since you need to cover this up with clothing and you need to wash your hands after each time touching it because it could transfer them, which obviously don't want to get um, testosterone on someone who's not indicated to use that. You may also have some skin irritation potentially, and then you can also get a variable dose from application to application. So we're not sure exactly what we're getting each time. The next dosing strategy are axillary solutions, or essentially solutions you put in your armpit. These typical dosings are 60 milligrams of a solution daily. Pharmacokinetics are similar to the previous one where it restores testosterone and estrogen concentrations to the physiologic range. Advantages of this are good skin tolerability, you know, more steady dose disadvantages. Once again, can transfer that from the skin to a spouse or a child. You can have skin irritation and then also may get a variable dose from application application. So we're not sure how much we're getting. 
Next, we'll talk about the transdermal patch. So putting on a patch here, the dose is typically one or two patches designed to nominally deliver about two to four milligrams of testosterone every 24 hours. And you're putting this on every day. So a new patch every day. Once again, Pharmacal Connects here, restoring serum testosterone, DHT, and estrogen concentration to physiologic range. Kind of steady there, not like that big peak on injections. Um, advantages, easy to apply. Disadvantages, skin irritation is frequent with these. For whatever reason, the patches don't do very well. Um, I shouldn't say do, don't do very well, but have more frequent skin irritation. Not as easy to titrate this dose, and sometimes you might need a couple patches. That's kind of how it works. Another formulation is the buckle or essentially bioadhesive tablets. It's kind of crazy. The, you go in there and you're the roof of your mouth, and you put these tablets in there and just sit there, and then it, it, it comes out and you get the medication. Um, dosing is about 30 milligrams, controlled release. These are bioadhesive tablets, and you give them twice a day. From the pharmacokinetics, it is absorbed by the buccal mucosa, so kind of like I said, in your cheek or in your gums around there. It restores the serum, testosterone, DHT, and estrogen concentrations to the normal male range. Advantages, it's convenience and discreet. Nobody can see it. Disadvantages can have gum irritation, right? So about 16% of people are going to have that. Also may have alterations in your taste. So the things you taste may taste a little different because of that. Another formulation we have are the testosterone pellets. So essentially pellets, these little pellets, you have to like cut them open and put them in. It's very similar to if, you know, I was familiar with a Nexplanon. It's kind of how the idea is you create this really small um, cut and you just put them right underneath there subcutaneously. But usually contain about 600 to 1200 milligrams. They're implanted subcutaneously. And the number of pellets and regimen, you know, are going to vary. So how many you put in all that stuff. But typically put in new pellets around every three months or so. Pharmacokinetics is the serum testosterone peaks at about one month and then it's sustained for about three to six months. And that's why I said you can make for around three to six months, but typically around three advantages required infrequent administration, right? So you're not coming in all the time. You're not shooting yourself uh, in the arm every week or two weeks and like that. And they should technically dissolve on their own. Disadvantages though, requiring an incision. So there's a procedure and procedure happens. Things may happen. You know, pellets may also exclude from the area can have an increased risk of hematoma or infection, things to think about there as well. There's also another injectable long-acting form of testosterone, undecanoate is what it's called. And dosing is usually about 750, you know, first time, then followed by 750 at four weeks, and then 750 milligram every 10 weeks. And the pharmacokinetics here is the serum testosterone concentrations are maintained in the normal range for, you know, most of the treated medication range. And so it's less peak here. It's a more extended range. You get it longer. Um, the advantages, it requires infrequent administration, but disadvantages, it requires large volume, uh, three to four cc's, and may produce coughing episodes like we've talked about. And then moving on here, we talk about the nasal T-gel. So there's a nasal T-gel. It's about 11 milligrams, two to three times a day is what the general recommendations are. Pharmacokinetics, the serum testosterone concentrations are maintained in the normal range for most men. Uh, for advantages, it's rapid absorption and avoidance of the first pass metabolism through liver. Disadvantages, multiple times a day, you gotta do it. That's annoying and it can have local nasal side effects. So you can kind of have nose irritation, rhinorrhea, all that fun stuff. So those are kind of the different forms in which we can use them. Like I said, the most common ones probably going to be injection uh, or patches or topical, but there are a bunch of ones to do that we can do and each have their advantages and disadvantages. So I wanted to mention those. And so moving on here, I do want to talk about some kind of specific cases and recommendations they talked about here in the article. They talked specifically about age-related decline in testosterone. So their recommendations, they do suggest against routinely prescribing testosterone therapy to men 65 plus with low testosterone, unless they have symptoms and lab work, like we talked about, like anyone else, you know, if we're treating using individualized approach. So you're more likely to get a low testosterone reading in these um, patients, but the question is if they don't have symptoms, are we treating them? And typically not, but they recommend against screening and treating everybody in that age group who has that. When you do age, it does seem to be like 
total and free testosterone seem to fall with age two and extend. It's kind of muddied. You know, SHBG does tend to increase, so free testosterone is often affected. And this fall of testosterone seems to be gradual, and sometimes it's not pre that prevalent at all. But what's more common is that those with adiposity and comorbid conditions we see those more commonly when they're older. So in fact, testosterone may actually not fall that much, but these chronic diseases typically increase with age leading to issues down the line with testosterone. So it's kind of like more of like what's causing it. Is it the age itself or is it the comorbid conditions that come along with age? Not entirely sure, but we do typically see this trend where testosterone goes down a little bit because of, you know, one of those reasons. And so what are the results though, when we do treat these people as well, the Testosterone treatment seems to help with sexual function um, with a small improvement in walking distance, maybe a little bit of mood and depressive symptoms, but no cognitive or vitality improvements is what they've kind of seen, which a lot of times they'll say, you feel more vital or you improve your brain and doesn't seem to do that. I can see. It does increase bone mineral density as well, um, but also on the side effect wise, we see increases in hemoglobin and the PSA levels like we talked about. Adverse events from a lower urinary tract perspective. So things like BPH, benign prostatic hyperplasia, where you have, you're going to the bathroom all the time, feel like you have to go, can't completely void, all those things. Um, those seem to be similar to placebo, which is cool. Everyone thought like, oh, we're going to increase those a lot with testosterone. It doesn't seem to be the case in those older patients that were increasing those lower urinary tract symptoms. You know, we will see an increase in hematocrit and hemoglobin potentially. Um, they also put in this one did show an increased coronary artery non-calcified plaque volume based off a CT angiogram. If you go back to our my uh, lipid talk, all the the season there on the cholesterol, we know that's not ideal having an increased plaque burden. And uh, so, but like once again, those are mixed from other studies as well. But those are things that we've seen in those kind of older populations. Another population we're talking about is let's talk about chronic conditions. So specifically, let's talk about HIV. In this recommendation, those who have HIV with weight loss, it is recommend, recommended that you know, obviously it should be individualized, but they do recommend short-term testosterone therapy for HIV-infected men with low testosterone and weight loss. The rationale, well, about 25% of HIV-infected men on antiretroviral therapy will have low total or free testosterone. And so when they give them, it seems to have about three to six months is what they recommend and showed improvements in body weight for those patients, lean body mass, increased mood, but actually minimal changes in quality of life. And so it's one of those ones where we're saying, hey, we have HIV, patient with HIV, maybe on antiretrovirals, has weight loss. This seems to be a reasonable thing to do for a short term. And what about type 2 diabetes? Super common, right? So they do not recommend using type 2 or using testosterone as a way to improve your type 2 diabetes um, in terms of the glycemic control specifically. They're not saying if you have low testosterone, you shouldn't give them that. But they're saying if you're trying to use it as a means to control blood sugar, the data is not that robust. You know, about 33% of those with type 2 diabetes do have low testosterone, though. So this is something you will see quite a bit. And there's been trials on testosterone, on glycemic control. They have variable results. So at the end of the day, they said, ah, we're not sure, but we wouldn't recommend using it for glycemic response. And Max said, not. This is not what we're saying. If you're over, oh, we shouldn't give it to diabetics. That's not the case. But they're saying that to control blood sugars is not recommended. What about those who've been on anabolic steroids? So specifically those coming off of anabolic steroids, like I said, they're kind of have an androgen deprivation symptom. They may have hypogonadal symptoms and they should be treated. Um, when we were doing this, I just want to make note, obviously this is a pretty active population that I'm talking to. If we were on those previously and we're coming off of them, obviously please do that in, you know, conjunction with a physician. I think that's very important. Um, but also this process may take months or years and may be incomplete. Some people never fully recover from what they've done with anabolic steroids. And like I said, that's not a, not a thing, I'm not trying to say that to shame anybody or anything like that, but just saying, hey, those realistically, it will take a long time or it may never fully get there. On top of that, if your patient is on opioids, um, this is something we can 
consider using because they have a higher chance of having hypogonadism. Anybody on doses that it's equivalent to about 30 milligrams of methadone will have suppression of endogenous testosterone. So if you have to use a opioid, they recommend buprenorphine has less hypogonadism associated with it. Um, but this is something common that we can see and may potentially have to, uh, like I said, have to treat hypogonadism secondary to opioid use. All right, next, let's talk about monitoring. So the big recommendations in society say you should maintain serum testosterone levels in the mid-normal range for young healthy men. That's like the general goal. And you should also evaluate for signs and symptoms of testosterone deficiency and formulation-specific adverse effects at each visit that you have with them. So they recommend measuring testosterone and hematocrit at three to six months and then measuring testosterone and hematocrit at 12 months as well and then annually after that. So want to be a little more cautious starting it. So I get you at three months or six months and then again at your one-year follow-up. And after that, it's every year is what they recommend. And for those who did select to do prostate monitoring, right, for those who had the talk with their physician said, yeah, I want to continue to follow it, they do recommend um, getting a PSA and a digital rectal exam at the baseline and then at somewhere at three to 12 months after treatment and then so that's kind of the way they recommend. So the practical way, let's let's go through this kind of step-by-step, -step, think about in general. In general, we should always be talking about explaining the potential benefits and risks of monitoring for prostate cancer and engaging in shared decision-making, right? So we want to assess this at three to 12 months and then after initiation and then annually to reassess whether symptoms have responded to treatment. So once again, we're talking to people, being having a conversation, and we want to make sure that, hey, we are being realistic in what we're doing and understanding it and understanding the risks and benefits so but assessing at three to 12 months and then after initiation and then annually to assess hey are we doing this we also want to assess testosterone concentrations three to six months after initiation t should be raised back into that mid normal range that we're going for we just also check hematocrit at baseline and then three to six months after starting treatment and then annually so kind of that's the general theme is like get a baseline then check things again and eh, somewhere like three to six months and then check it out a year and then after that it's yearly is generally what we're going for and when we're checking that hematocrit, so we should so obviously be looking for that. If hematocrit's above 54, stop, hold off on testosterone until it decreases to a normal level. Then we should evaluate them also for some sort of hypoxia or sleep apnea. And if we don't find anything, we can restart it at a reduced dose, so not at the previous level we're at. On top of that, in terms of measuring bone mineral density of the lumbar spine or femoral neck, you know, they do recommend doing it about one to two years after starting testosterone therapy for hypogonadal men with osteoporosis. So like I said, not everyone's recommended to get that, but if you had osteoporosis, they do recommend that. And once again, for prostate considerations, those men in that 55 to 69, or if you're 40 to 69 with increased risk of prostate cancer, if we're choosing to do monitoring, DRA and PSA levels before you start, check that again at three to 12 months. Um, and then with normal screen when that's normal go back to our traditional what we're doing for our cancer screening so there are a couple dosing specific considerations so for our injectable testosterone anthonate or cipionate we should be measuring our serum testosterone concentrations about midway between injections so i know we talked about like three to six months right that's like once we feel like we have a good dose here this is saying hey midway between injections is usually about you know if you do inject about a week after that to kind of see hey where are we at in that midweek like we talked about it's kind of in the zone where we want to be if the mid-interval testosterone is greater than 600 or less than 350, then we adjust the dose or the frequency depending on a bunch of different things. But long story short, we're measuring it because it peaks up and then goes down about a, a week in mid or midway between doses saying, hey, where are we at? Do we need to adjust from there? If it's greater than 600 or less than 350, we want to tweak things a little bit. From a transdermal gel, we're going to assess the testosterone concentrations two to eight hours after application, after the patient has been on it for at least one week. So we're kind of seeing, hey, where are you at? you know, been on it for a week, where are we at two to eight hours after, and then adjust the dose to get a mid-normal range. Transdermal patch, we're going to assess the testosterone concentration three to 12 hours after application and shoot for mid-normal range once again. 
for the buckle ones for the tablets you assess immediately before or after application of the fresh system for the pellets we're going to measure testosterone concentration at the end of the dosing interval and then we're going to adjust the number of pellets and or dosing to get to the mid-normal range for the injectable testosterone and decanoate, which is kind of the longer lasting one, we're going to measure the serum testosterone at the end of the dosing interval, just prior to the next injection and aim to once again, treat, treat it uh, kind of around that low mid range that we're going for there. So the lower nadir, so kind of lowest there around low mid. And, you know, why are we doing this? What's, what are we monitoring for? Well, we're monitoring this because we think that it's important to, to make sure we're getting the therapeutic dose, right? So specifically transdermal gels can have lots of variability. So we want to say, hey, are we actually getting the medication in the quantity and concentration that we want? That's what we're looking for. And specifically those injections, sometimes we can reach super physiologic levels and be way up there. We want to make sure we're not doing that because obviously the higher we go and the more we have, the higher the risk of side effects. And so that's what we're looking for. And specifically, like I said, we've talked about with all the prostate stuff. Um, we care about that so much just because the, the theoretical mechanism behind it. But like I said, if it's been good for a year, we can go on back to normal screening. And one thing I did want to mention though, if we are screening and we have a PSA that goes greater than 4.0, or you've had an increase of greater than 1.4 nanogram per milliliter, um, or you find an abnormal digital rectal exam, all of those would be indications to refer to urology. So like I said, a lot of times though, we will want to repeat PSA to confirm, to make sure it isn't transient. There are certain illnesses or whatnot can make them higher transiently, but pretty much the general recommendations if you don't like it recheck the lab that's like a really good um recommendation in general is not that you don't like it but if you get one that doesn't quite make sense to you repeat it again and so another kind of caveat here is if your psa to start before testosterone let's say your psa was between 2.6 and 4 nanograms per milliliter let's say that was your range and then you're probably not gonna use four as the cutoff right so like it's like let's say it was 3.7 and it's like oh four all of a sudden it's four like that doesn't necessarily mean anything so then you'd use the 1.4 increase rather than four like i said that's going over there kind of all 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 kind of more nuanced there as well but long story should be looking for that all right that is going to conclude this 2018 um, endocrine society general clinical practice guidelines i think like i said i just wanted to get this out there as the start of this season because it kind of lays a nice foundation for like what the majority of people are doing out there like i said we're going to go into some more specific use cases and answering some more specific questions with the podcast moving forward but this is kind of a general recommendation overall hey how do we think about screening for this what do the labs mean? How do we treat this? I hope you have a good understanding after this and you feel a lot better, but I appreciate you sticking with me. Um, like I said, we're to the end of the podcast now. So if you did enjoy this, you know, if you liked, comment, and subscribe, that would really mean the world to me. Uh, if you gave this a five-star rating on Apple um, iTunes, that would really, really help people find the show. And that'd be, you know, helpful to get this information out to more people. I'm just trying to help as many people as I can. So, but if you've been listening to this, thank you so, so much for following. I really appreciate it. Now get off your phone, have a great rest of your day, and we'll see you next time. Disclaimer, this podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The topics discussed should not solely be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any condition. The information presented here was created with an evidence-based approach, but please keep in mind that science is always changing, and at the time of listening to this, there may be some new data that makes this information incomplete or inaccurate. Always seek the advice of your personal physician or qualified healthcare provider for questions regarding any medical condition.